our series of uh, uh, 1 Samuel, beginning to look tonight at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We're going to be looking at Hannah's prayer. So 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Well, let me add my welcome as well to all the visitors here tonight. It's great to have you with us. Uh, join Ben and Helen uh, with the dedication of Levi. Um, we're about to start this series, as you've heard, in 1 Samuel, and then we'll be doing that throughout this term. I'll be looking at this passage in chapter 2 in particular tonight. Um, but you'll know if you're a regular here that last term, for the first time, we um, started a podcast called Deeper, uh, which um, I guess looked at further questions that flow out of some of the passages we're looking at on Sunday, digging a little deeper. That's going to continue this term on 1 Samuel, but this time we're wanting to make it interactive, so we're taking it up a notch, and we'd love you to submit questions, uh, which Grace Jones will add into the podcast, um, get the pastor or whoever's been speaking that week to address that question that may have come out of the passage. So uh, that mobile number is one where you can text any questions that you might have, and they hopefully will be included in the podcast that follows uh, in the coming week. So keep that in mind as we go through this series in 1 Samuel. But let me pray for us as we come to God's word, uh, ask for his help uh, to understand it clearly tonight. Lord God, we thank you that we can gather here. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word to us, which is living and active, uh, which judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts.
And we pray tonight that you might be at work in us by your spirit, applying your word to our hearts and minds, that we would be challenged afresh, that we would be encouraged where needed, and that you would help us to not only hear but to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1715, the French king Louis XIV died. He had had a massive reign of 72 years, and it was at the peak of his country's royal wealth. It was at its zenith during this time. He was the one who commissioned the Palace of Versailles that's still known the world over because it was designed to convey his majesty and importance to the world around he had millions of attendants, it seemed, that kept on, uh, on his whim every day. He had the largest nobility in Europe at the time. Everyone acknowledged his greatness and power. He called himself the Great and was very proud of his absolute power and made the infamous statement that, I am the state. Well, you can imagine as his life drew to an end, he was surrounded by his many attendants uh, still as they kept watch and looked after his every need. And when he finally passed away, he had a very spectacular funeral in St. Denis Cathedral. Um, it was done quite splendidly and in an effort to emphasize his greatness, uh, instructions had been given before he died that the cathedral would be very dimly lit with just one candle next to the coffin. And thousands and thousands of French people waited in this large cathedral and outside to hear what would be said about Louis the Great. And Bishop Massillon uh, stood up to speak, came up beside the coffin. He bent down and snuffed out the candle and began by saying, "'Only God is great.'" to the surprise of the crowd listening. But that's something of the theme that we're going to see through the book of 1 Samuel, where kings are raised up for the first time in the nation of Israel, where different leaders come and go. But what is clear overall is that God is sovereign. He's truly the great one. And as much as there is a struggle for human power at times, it's God who determines whether people rise or fall. While human leaders will continue to struggle for power, it's interesting that the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel starts with a picture of powerlessness. Here is Hannah, an insignificant woman who is struggling with being barren and feeling helpless about her situation. And this story in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2 is presented through her life and via her lips in this prayer that we're going to look at tonight is somebody who felt very keenly her helplessness. But Hannah threw herself on God's provision. It's provision in prayer. And there's a humble acknowledgement in all that she expresses that God can overcome all things. And so what we'll see as we consider her prayer is that the words go beyond Hannah's immediate situation. They certainly address her struggles and what God might do in her life. But they are prophetic as well. They look beyond her life to the wider um, situation of the nation of Israel and even beyond that to ourselves even today. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this, is how can helpless people be radically rescued? How can helpless people be radically rescued? Just as we'll see occurs for Hannah. Well, that brings us to the first answer to that question. And the first answer is this. 
through humble dependence on God's power. Through humble dependence on God's power. Notice again what is recorded in verses 1 to 3. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one that is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. In verses 21 to 28, at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 1, we see that the promised child that she had prayed for uh, is answered by God, and Samuel is born. But she made a promise as she um, prayed for a child that she would give her child to the Lord's service. She would bring him back to Shiloh where she uttered those prayers before Eli the high priest. And she would dedicate him under Eli to the service of God. And she fulfills that vow at the end of chapter 1. At the age we think of about three years old even. Brings him to the temple after he's weaned and he is presented before Eli. And it's in response to her fulfilling her vow in that way that we get this prayer that is really a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Now, I think most of us have experienced a moment where we're just bubbling over with thanks because of God's work in our life when we've seen his hand do amazing things. But not often, perhaps, do we sit down and reflect as much as Hannah does here where she writes and speaks this prayer and expresses so fully what God has done in her life and how thankful she is. Notice how she begins in verse 1 by stating that her horn, which is a symbol of strength, so she's speaking metaphorically, her horn has been lifted high. She's saying that God has strengthened her. It's God who has lifted her up. It's through him and in him that she boasts. And that word translated boast in verse 1 is literally enlarged over. It's really a picture of defeat of one's enemies by them being swallowed up. And so we would say, well, in the context of chapter 1, Peninnah was her enemy. She was Elkanah's second wife who had borne many children. And she had taunted Hannah that she was childless uh, while she had many children. But of course... This is a theological introduction to two books that focus on the rise of the kingship through the nation of Israel. And so the language actually goes beyond the personal rivalry between Peninnah and Hannah. I think that's made clear by, I guess, the words that she uses. Uh, the language of enemies and deliverance um, go beyond their personal rivalry. This prayer is both personal, but it's also prophetic about the larger issues in the life of Israel. I mean, Israel at this time was routinely oppressed by pagan nations that surround it. Remember, we've just come out of the period of the judges as we hit the book of Samuel. Samuel will be the last judge. And through a period of a couple of hundred years that they've already been in the promised land, there has been really no permanency, no good leadership beyond the death of Joshua. Yes, God has raised up judge after judge, and they have helped the nation sometimes for 30 or 40 years, but then as soon as the judge died, things returned to chaos again. And so in this messy period of the judges, we get at the end of that book in Judges 21 verse 25, in Israel in that day there was no king and every person did as they saw fit. 
And it's a picture of a nation longing for real leadership. When will there be another Moses or Joshua? When will God raise up somebody to lead us as a nation? And so there's that bigger picture in mind as Hannah prays. And in verse 2, she acknowledges that the Lord is unique, notice, that he is the source of her strength, the basis of her joy. And all of it comes because of God's character. God can be trusted. And so she speaks of God as a rock, uses this metaphor to picture the strength and security needed by Hannah. But also the nation at this time, in its turmoil, they're looking for a rescuer. And the point in this description in verses 1 and 2 is that she gives thanks not only for the things that God has done in her life, but for God himself. It's not simply our experience of God's blessings that she's thankful for, but for God's character, for him being who he is, the rock in her life. And of course, out of the turmoil in the larger picture of the nation, Hannah's gift of her son Samuel is going to be a great help. He is going to be a godly leader who will start bringing the nation in a good direction. He will be the one that will anoint the first kings. And so as we reflect on this first section and think about ourselves today and what this could mean for us, I think the application for us in Hannah's prayer is really given for us in verse 3. She says to avoid proud talk because God knows and judges our deeds. In the presence of Yahweh, all human arrogance is totally misplaced, if not dangerous. Because God's character, as she describes it here, is not only the one who knows, but the God who weighs up. He will judge. He will rightly balance and understand what has taken place. God knows the ups and downs of our lives. He knows when people are experiencing grief and frustration like Hannah is. And he will judge our actions. And here in verse 3, there's the personal and the prophetic again, I think. Personally, Peninnah, with her many children, should not have spoken arrogantly. She should not have been taunting Hannah in her barrenness. But God was aware of that situation. He was about to bring about change. We can't speak proudly either as, as if we determine things because it's God who does the determining. And thinking about the larger issues for the nation of Israel... You know, they were oppressed by the Philistines and other nations. And they often boasted of their power and how in following their pagan gods, they had conquered Israel, supposedly God's people, that they were stronger. But it was all arrogant and empty talk before the God of Israel who was truly sovereign. God knew and weighed up these things as well. He determined what unfolded, not the weak people of this world. And so I think as we think about all of these matters in terms of our own lives, we need to be so careful, don't we, of any proud talk, of speaking and thinking as if we're controlling things, that we're making the decisions, as if we're sovereign, as if we're seated on God's throne. The famous London pastor Charles Spurgeon uh, once said uh, to a group of people, we have plenty of people nowadays who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Samson killed a lion and said nothing about it. The Holy Spirit finds modesty so rare that he takes care to record it. Say much of what the Lord has done for you, but say little of what you have done. Do not utter a self-glorifying sentence. 
Well, I'd hate to think what Charles Spurgeon thinks of social media if he'd been around in our days and 90% of it being self-promotion, it seems. But he's right, isn't he? Proud, arrogant, boastful talk, that's the mark of the world. That's not the mark of a Christian. We should be those who are humbly dependent upon our powerful God, like Hannah was, who didn't take any credit herself, but depended completely on her deliverer. We should delight in his work. Ultimately, his work to save us. In fact, even to be included in God's rescue plan, we need to humbly acknowledge our weakness, don't we? We need to realise that we're sinners in desperate need of God's grace, that we cannot do it ourselves, that we don't earn merit, that we can't make our way to God. We are weak and desperate, and yet he reaches down to us in the person of his son. We're dependent on him. And that brings me to a second answer, a second answer to our question of how helpless people can be radically rescued. The second answer is this, through trusting in God who can reverse anything, through trusting that God can reverse any situation. Notice again where Hannah goes next in her prayer, verses four to eight. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave. He raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. So in this second section of Hannah's prayer, we've got a reflection on the radical reversals that can occur in this life. And Hannah's very clear here, isn't she, that all these reversals come from the hand of God. It's God who's sovereign over all of this. He's the one. It's not about human status. If there is any, it's determined by him. And so over and over in these verses, we get these amazing changes of fortune, don't we? The lowly are lifted up, the powerful are brought low. Reversals of fortune can be suffered or enjoyed by the warrior or the weak, the well-fed or the hungry, the rich or the poor, the fertile or the barren. You know, we're told later in verse 21 of chapter 2 that Hannah went on to have another five children, three sons and two daughters. God blessed her more than she could possibly imagine. But did you notice here as she speaks in this prayer that even with the birth of one child that she prayed for fervently for many years, it seems, she felt as if she had reached the ideal, that she had received everything that she could ever want. She speaks about the woman who has seven children, seven being a number of perfection in the Bible, the complete set, as it were. Even after one, she feels like a mother who has seven. And in verse six, there's perhaps the most surprising reversal of all, because here it envisages that the Lord brings people back to life from the realm of the dead. Now, the word used there is actually Sheol, the abode of the dead. It's often translated as grave in our English Bibles. And in the Old Testament in particular, it's um, depicted at times as like a huge underground cave. It's like a, a waiting, holding zone for those who will one day be raised to life at the resurrection. 
The picture here is the Lord can deliver even from death. Whether physically or spiritually, the Lord can deliver. Let me share with you a story that looks at both. It was 10 past midnight in Chile, out in the Atacama Desert, a place so devoid of life that they send astronauts there in preparation for their space missions. It was the 13th of October when the first miner came back above ground, 69 days after they'd been trapped in the bowels of the earth. What am I talking about? It's the San Jose copper and gold mine in northern Chile. There was that great mining accident on the 5th of August, 2010. 33 men were trapped 700 metres under the ground. But in what was an amazing reversal, all 33 of them were saved. People were expecting this small area that they were huddled in the partial collapse, their cave to be their grave. And yet every single one of them came back to the surface. And what a change it was. As they arrived to the top, they unfurled a giant sign saying, Mission Accomplished Chile. There were an estimated one billion people watching this on live television coverage. It was incredible. These guys went from just waiting to die to being instant celebrities. They had microphones stuck in their face. They were giving interviews on TV. They were being offered book deals. Overnight, they were like the sensation in the country. It was so amazing. And of course, who determined this? How did this radical reversal happen? Well, it was God. And in a country like Chile, where it's strongly Catholic, that was acknowledged. I don't know if you remember the Beaconsfield Mine Rescue in Australia in 2006, but not much was said then about God being involved at all. In a strongly Catholic nation like Chile, God was completely credited with the reversal of this situation. When 44-year-old Esteban Rojas stepped out of the rescue capsule, he just dropped to his knees in prayer in front of everybody. The youngest miner, 19-year-old Jimmy Sanchez, wrote in a message, you know, there were really 34 of us down there, not 33, because God never left us. And likewise, Chileans as a whole embraced the mine rescue as a miracle from God. Before the rescue even was completed, the Chilean president, Sebastian Pinera, was saying, when the first miner emerges safe and sound, I hope all the bells of all the churches of Chile ring out forcefully with joy and hope because faith will move mountains. And as one story put it in the Daily Mail um, in the United Kingdom, a deep religious faith has powered this rescue. Miners, their families, rescuers alike, all believe that their prayers have been answered. God has reversed this situation. Why is God able to do these things? Verse 8, Hannah says, God is able to bring about such change because the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. Now the word foundations there is literally pillars. It's sort of picturing creation sort of sitting on a series of columns. But the idea is to point to God being the all-powerful creator, the one who is sovereign over all things, controls every moment, everything that happens. Every person, every nation rises or falls dependent upon God's will. And that's also why the downcast can be cared for. That's why the least are important, because God has made every person and he cares for the least, even up to the greatest. And he's able to reverse the two. 
And all this, along with Hannah's own example, should reassure us as we think about applying this to ourselves that God can do radical reversals in our lives. I'm sure some of you here tonight have testimonies to that very fact. You know, the kind of jostling for position, wrestling for status that forms so much of human relationships in this world is so empty and ridiculous in the light of God's sovereignty. If somebody's in power, God has allowed them to be there. If somebody is downtrodden, he can lift them up. Hannah reassures us of the power of God and the arrogance of humans who are essentially powerless. She was somebody who was so aware of her own weakness, so dependent upon God and saw herself as raised up by him alone. But I think this message, while on the one hand it's reassuring, it's also very confronting because there's a lot of people in this world that think they can do things on their own. They think they're in control. They don't need God. I've got it. I can do this in my own strength. And you have to listen to our songs on the radio or our TV programs and over and over, just look to the strength within you. You can do it. You've got this. It's all about you. But we know as we hear that stuff, it's just nonsense. We're weak mortals. We're here one day and gone the next. And yet there's a God who's sovereign over our lives. And so often he's ignored. And as the nation will go on to appoint their first king in a little while, those kings and other leaders that God will raise up need to remember these truths, <laughs> that it's not them, that they need to be dependent upon God who determines the circumstances. It doesn't count what position or status you are in. It depends on your faith in God. That's what matters. That's what determines the outcome. Now, perhaps you're thinking tonight, well, look, you know, the God of radical reversals, I would love this. I would love God to intervene in my life right now. I've been struggling with this thing all year or maybe the last 10 years, and I've prayed and I haven't seen God intervene and just solve this situation for me. I just long for that to happen. Where is the God of radical reversals when I don't see answers? I guess I want to say to you, if that's your situation, that sometimes even when there are no reversals of our difficult circumstances on earth, we need to realise that this life, short or long, is not the end of the story. God's got a story that's ploughing on through eternity. And he will reverse things on the judgment day. Those that have been downtrodden, those that have been martyred, whatever it might be, will be raised up. All those that have trusted in Christ will receive a crown of eternal life. That reversal is the greatest reversal from weak, struggling, flawed humans battling through this life to perfection, a life without tears or mourning or death or pain, eternal life with our Saviour who laid himself down for us. That is the reversal that we long for in the end. And that's what awaits those who trust in Jesus. And that brings me to my third answer to this question. Third answer to the question of how helpless people can be radically rescued. And that is by acknowledging his promised king. By acknowledging his promised king. Have a look at verses 9 and 10 again as Hannah finishes her prayer. 
He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, we have this theme, human strength amounts to nothing. True power only lies within God. But entering here more strongly at the end of the prayer is this element of judgment, that God, who weighs things up, as we saw earlier in verse 3, will determine things in the end. He will decide where people stand. He is the one who knows all things. And notice that it's only God's people who will be assured on that judgment day. Only they will prevail and stand firm because they have depended on God's strength and not their own. But the wicked noticed those who oppose the Lord, those who, as the inference is throughout this passage, have done things their way in their own strength. Well, Hannah reminds us that they will be silenced, that they will be shattered. And notice that the metaphor of the horn from verse 1 returns, that metaphor for strength. And she closes out the prayer in verse 10. Here we have the promise of an anointed king who the Lord will strengthen. And of course I say promised king again because no king yet exists in the nation of Israel. This has never happened. And yet it's anticipating not only that Saul and then David will be appointed, but that even more beyond them. I think here more than anywhere in the prayer, Hannah's prayer moves beyond the personal to the prophetic. She looks forward to the future. She speaks better than she knows. Yes, her son is going to be important. He's going to be a kingmaker. He's going to anoint the first two kings. But there's one greater than Samuel coming, one greater than David coming. And as God's rescue plan continues to unfold, he ultimately keeps pointing us forward to the messianic king, the Christ who will come. And of course, David would be the greatest example of you know, the ideal that they were looking for. He was the peak of the line of kings, only two kings in. And yet we know that David was such a flawed character. He was so disappointing in many ways. And so if that was all that was on offer, if that was all that God was promising, we're left wanting more, frustrated. And yet in David's own lifetime, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes him a promise that there'll be a king that comes from his line who will rule eternally, who won't be like the other kings, will rule for 30 or 40 years and then dead. And the next king, and then they died. And that's the repeated refrain throughout Samuel and Kings. But no, there'll come a king who will reign eternally. How can that be? Well, because here is the application that takes us through to Jesus. And I think as we look at this passage, we see some really strong parallels between Samuel's birth and the birth of Christ who was to come. They were both long-awaited They both came from insignificant families. They were both going to be leaders of God's people. But of course, the parallels end with a major difference. Jesus is the divine son of God. He's far greater than Samuel would ever be. But it's interesting as Mary prays Jesus' mother as she anticipates the birth of this promised child that she takes up the language of Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel 1. Have you ever noticed this before? Look at Luke 1, verses 52 to 55. Mary said in part, 
Speaking of God, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants. Now, Samuel would be the last judge, as I mentioned earlier. He'd also play the role of priest as he took over from Eli. He would be a prophet and speak about things of the future. He was a great leader of the nation. But you see, every prophet, priest, and king was only a foreshadowing of one greater who would come. Neither Samuel nor David or any that would follow would stand up against the promises of one who would come who would perfectly do all things. Who is it that could come and deal with all of God's enemies, as Hannah speaks about in her prayer? Only the messianic king, only the Christ. And so as we think about Samuel's humble yet miraculous birth, we should be drawn to thinking about Jesus. An even more miraculous birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, this weak child born to an unimportant woman in a backwater of the Roman Empire, and yet he would live a perfect life and then lay down his life for all those who would trust in him, that he would pay for their sin. The one who came from heaven in all his glory, humiliated, dying this despicable death on the cross, down, 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 down he came, only to be exalted by the Father as he was raised from the dead and ascended to his right hand. And isn't that what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2? Let me remind you of those words, verses 8 and 9. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus, the promised king that Hannah even prayed about? I think sometimes we struggle to grasp how radical God is. I think sometimes people view themselves as at the bottom of a deep pit, but have no way of getting out of it, that even God could not rescue them, that they're not worthy of being saved. You don't know my life, the things that have happened. God could not be concerned or interested for me. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are people that are sitting on the mountaintop. I don't need God. I can do everything. I have it in myself. I don't need anything that you can offer me. And of course, both are so wrong. Every person is at the bottom of the pit, but nobody is out of God's reach. God can reach down and take anybody out. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the God we love if we've come to a knowledge of Jesus as our Savior and Lord. It's a reversal that is amazing. And the truth is we're undeserving of it. But if we will trust in God's eternal king who paid for our sin, then we will see that great reversal in our life. And maybe your life is really difficult at the moment. But you tell me the reversal of somebody who was in the pit, an unimportant sinner, loved by God, raised up so that on the last day they will be before their saviour in heaven, crowned with eternal life, heirs and rulers with Jesus, their brother and their saviour in heaven. I mean, that is astounding. But that is what the God of the Bible does for people who humbly 
come to him through his son. I think sometimes we struggle to picture heaven and how amazing that reversal is of who we are in our weak state and what has promised us. So let me bring you back to something more concrete to try and picture it. Let's return to that incident, the mine rescue in Chile. You know, when the miners came up uh, one at a time in this small capsule lifted through this um, tube that was made down to them, most were wearing special um, beige-coloured T-shirts that had been delivered to them. These had been created by the Chilean branch of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, written in Spanish on the front, Thank you, Lord. On the back, a verse from the Bible, Psalm 95, verse 4, In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. Reverend Aldredo Cooper, the chaplain to the present, said of the miners, they're all wanting to testify about Jesus. All 33 of them are saying, there were 34 down there. Jesus Christ was with us. You know, it's incredible. He said that only five or six of them were truly believers when they went down into that mine. And when they got stuck down there, they started that five or six running services and encouraging the others to look to God. And by the time they came to the service, every single one of them was a believer. And the way it happened in terms of the rescue was that they had to send a medic down first. They had to check on the health of the miners. Would they be able to get them back up through this capsule? Somebody needed to go down and help them and assist them if they were to be rescued. Isn't that a great picture of what God has done for us in the sending of his son to earth? that he might help helpless people like you and I to be brought to new life, to lead us back out of the darkness below into the light of new life. Well, where do you stand with Jesus, Hannah's promised king? Have you been included in God's rescue plan because you've humbly acknowledged your need and you've thrown yourself in dependence upon his promised king? If you have, you've seen the radical change that only God can bring in a person's life. If you haven't, I really want to encourage you, urge you tonight to speak with somebody about that. It's the most important question to consider. And our world wants to teach us over and over that we can just do it our way. (laughs) But the road to hell is paved with people singing Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. God says, come to Jesus, my only son, who is the way, the truth, the only life. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I pray that that will be your story too. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray and give thanks. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace, your undeserved kindness shown to us. We want to say with Hannah that we rejoice in you for lifting us up. There is no one like you, Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like you, our God. Help us not to speak arrogantly, but to acknowledge our need, to depend upon your promised King, who can take us from death to life. 
Lord, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. Help us to appreciate your great love for us in doing this. Help us to cling to him, to place our trust in him and him alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.